Hello and welcome to the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast, the second edition. This is your host, Scott, the anesthesia resident. Thanks for tuning in to episode four of the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast. And today we'll talk about anesthesia considerations for craniotomies and tumor uh, resections. And since this is the first anesthesia consideration for procedure episodes I'm going to do, I'm going to kind of just set this up. So first of all, my primary source is going to be the Jaffe book. Um, This is the anesthesiologist manual for surgical procedures. And I'm going to break it up like the way the book has it, the preoperative period, things to consider, the intraoperative period, and lastly, the postoperative period. So hopefully, after you listen to this uh, episode and the future episodes like this, you'll be able to come in with knowledge on how to manage the patient in each phase of the perioperative period. Okay, and um, before we get started, I would like to remind you, if you're able to do the pre-survey with the link in the description, that would be wonderful. This is a good time to do it. And after that, let's go ahead and get started. First off, I forgot to say this in an introduction, but we'll kind of do a brief introduction to the surgical considerations as well. Okay, so for this one, especially when you're doing craniotomies for tumors, the location of the tumor is very important because that determines the approach of the surgeons and ultimately the positioning they want the patient to be in. So generally, there are four possible positions uh, which a patient could be in dependent on where the tumor is. So supine, lateral, prone, and sitting. So for supine procedures, uh, the type of tumors include things like most supratentorial tumors in the frontal, temporal, or anterior parietal lobe, and possible tumors from the lateral ventricles and third ventricles. Tumors that need to be in the lateral position are things like tumors of the posterior lateral parietal lobe, posterior temporal lobe, the cerebellal pontine angle, or the lateral cerebellum. And procedures that require a prone positioning are tumors of the occipital lobe, most midline cerebellar tumors, and tumors of the fourth ventricle. And lastly, sitting position uh, are for tumors of the pineal region, as well as tumors of the fourth ventricle or midline cerebellum. So basically, as you can see, there's a lot of positioning options dependent on where the tumor is. So before the surgery, it's a good idea to talk to the neurosurgery team to figure out which approach they are planning to do and therefore the positioning uh, the patient will have to be in. So knowing this information ahead of time helps you plan your anesthetic. Okay, so we're going to do a rapid fire review of the procedure highlights. So positioning, as we just talked about, depends on the location of the tumor and the surgery team. The type of incision, usually linear or curvilinear. Unique considerations are that ET tube 
might be taped in a certain direction dependent on the surgical field. So you'll possibly need to use a oral ray. Decatron might need to be given preoperatively and dose Q6 hours to prevent brain edema. And controlling the patient's ICP is going to be critical during the induction phase. Antibiotics, uh, generally ceftraxone, but our institution uses uh, ANSEF a lot of times or whatever other uh, antibiotics they were on in the floor. The surgical time for craniotomies is somewhere between three to five hours, depending on the, the surgeon and the team. Regarding closing considerations, essentially maintaining good BB control to prevent hemorrhage. The estimated blood loss is generally between 50 to 500 cc's. Um, if the tumor is in meningioma, then they have a higher chance of bleeding because they are highly vascularized. Post-op disposition is usually ICU or PCU for about one to three days. The mortality rate for craniotomies for tumor resections is between zero to 5%. And the mortality rate increases when a tumor is in critical areas, so things like the midbrain or anything like that. All right, so that was the surgical considerations. Now we're going to move on to anesthesia considerations. During the pre-op period, you'll generally see young, healthy patients that came in with some seizures or extremity weakness, and on imaging, they find this mass. But otherwise, these patients are generally healthy. And like we kind of talked about before, the, um, it's important to discuss with the surgeons preoperatively to determine the positioning, the surgical approach, and the tumor type as well as potential for blood loss. And we're going to break down the system considerations in the, during the pre-op period as well. So respiratory-wise... There's a possibility of developing neurogenic pulmonary edema, considering how sick the patient is. Uh, sometimes these patients have a history of chemotherapy or radiation therapy that could affect the pulmonary function and management. So keeping these things in mind is going to be important during the anesthesia planning. Next is the cardiovascular section. So tumors could cause uh, edema formation, which increases the ICP. And one thing to keep in mind, if um, you listen to the neurophysiology episode, things like Cushing's triad, you'll see things like hypertension, bradycardia, and respiratory irregularity. And these symptoms would resolve with decreasing ICP. Then the diagnosis is generally followed by high-dose steroids. Regarding neurological considerations, in your history taking, think of things that could present itself with increased ICP. So headaches, nausea, vomiting, vision changes, recent onset of seizures, any focal deficits in, um, neurologically. So weak, lower extremity weakness or upper extremity weakness, that kind of thing. The general labs that you'll get for craniotomies includes like the usual C CBC, CMP, as well as coags and usually a type and screen. And obviously any other labs uh, based on the other conditions that the patient presents with. Regarding pre-medication, 
If there's any concern at all for increased ICP, then it's advised to avoid respiratory depressant medications like opioids. And the reason for this is if they take opioids, they don't breathe as much due to the respiratory suppression. And that increases the CO2. And as we learned in the neurophysiology episode, that would increase the cerebral blood flow. And finally, that would increase the ICP. So generally, unless they really need it, try to avoid any medications that could depress the respiratory drive. Next is the intraoperative period. Almost exclusively, uh, you'll be using general anesthesia with ET tube. Okay, and we're going to break down the intraoperative period to the different stages of the surgery. So for induction, the main concern is to controlling the intracranial pressure. As you know, one of the side effects of laryngoscopy is hypertension tachycardia, which unfortunately increases the ICP. So for planning your induction, it's great to do a slow and controlled induction. Basically try to keep them normal tensive as possible, while at the same time avoid hypotension. So to achieve this end, consider propofol or perhaps barbiturates, if that's something common in your institution. And this allows you to induce quickly without increasing the ICP. Also consider a short-acting opioid, things like fentanyl, or perhaps lidocaine at a 1.5 milligrams per kilo dosing to blunt the sympathetic response. And depending on how hemodynamically stable the patient is, you should consider pre-induction arterial line if they're not stable and consider the need for other things like osmotic diuresis and CSF drainage. During the induction phase, you should try to avoid hypoventilation as hypercapnia increases the cerebral blood flow and worsens the intracranial pressure. And the one last thing to keep in mind regarding induction agents is succinylcholine. So theoretically, if a patient has upregulated nicotinic receptors at the neuromuscular junction, it increases the risk for hyperkalemia. But if the patient had uh, normal labs going in, it shouldn't be that much of a, a problem. For positioning-wise, try to avoid excessive flexion or extension or rotation in the neck um, as this could impair cerebral venous drainage. So if they are... If the neck or head is moved too far in one, one direction, it could kink off the, the veins and, and reduces the cerebral venous drainage. The preferable thing is to have the head up, which allows gravity to, you know, bring the, the blood back down for drainage. But obviously, you're going to have to account for cardiac output for the elevated head. One last thing to improve venous drainage is to avoid excessive peep. So ain't, avoid anything above 10 centimeters of water. And this is something that we don't necessarily do at our institution. But if you're using a stereotactic frame, which is like this frame that holds entire head in place, or like the, you expect a super difficult intubation, consider an awake fiber optic intubation. 
Once the airways get secured, you can induce a propofol and fentanyl. Okay, next, regarding maintenance, ICP controls can be very important until they open up the dura. So on surgeon requests, you can give mannitol, especially after pinning, and usual dosage is like 0.5 to 1.5 grams per kilo given as a bolus. The most common dosage that uh, I ran into is about 25 grams, but again, it depends on the surgeon. The other thing you could use instead of mannitol is hypertonic saline, so 3% starting at 50 to 100 cc's per hour with hourly sodium surveillance because remember, you don't want to overcorrect uh, any hypomonotremia too quickly because the mnemonic, you know, uh, low to high, the pons or die, the pontine myelitis. And from high to low, the brain will blow. So lots of uh, strabodema. And one thing to remember about giving mannitol is to be careful of using this in CHF patients or patients with pulmonary edema or renal failure as this could increase the central circulatory volume, which makes those conditions worse. Other things, other medications you can use to control ICP is Decadron. Usually, it's given at a relatively high dose of 10 milligrams preoperatively. And you could be asked to give things like Capra, so like liver, tercetum, that one. I can never pronounce that right. But anyways, Capra. Okay, other maintenance considerations is the use of gas. So... Depending on if it's an emergent case versus an elective one, emergent you would primarily use a gas, at least you get, get the, the case started and you can switch over to Tiva. But if you're if it's an elective case, you generally would start off with Tiva. But uh, you know, the reason why you would try to avoid gas because at max greater than one, it increases the cerebral blood flow which makes the ICP worse, especially if they already have and increase the ICP. And anything above 0.5 mag would interfere with neuromonitoring. And if you like an episode on neuromonitoring, I would refer you to episode three. Okay. And uh, speaking of Tiva, generally the most common drug to use is propofol as well as remifentanil. Okay, next is vent management. Essentially, for tidal volumes, you're still going to do low tidal volumes, so between 6 to 8 cc's per kilo, and trying to keep your peak pressures less than 40 centimeters of water, and try to avoid excessive peep unless it is required to improve oxygenation. And the reason for this is if you increase intrathoracic pressure, it also decreases the cerebral venous drainage. And lastly, you want to control the CO2. And the goal is to have an end-tidal CO2 between 30 to 35. Next, emergence. So at the start of dura closure, consider changing to like a low-dose sevoflurane mixture with low-dose Remy infusion going, and this helps prevent the patient from coughing at the end of the procedure. And again, tight blood pressure control is still 
necessary. So you can titrate beta blocking drugs, things like labetalol or espalol as needed. If you use any neuromuscular blockade, definitely re reverse it. And by the time they are putting on dressings, you can discontinue all of your anesthetics except for your low-dose germifentanyl drip. And like with other cases, give oxygen supplementation as well as PMV prophylaxis. So in this case, Zofran 30 minutes before extubation. Regarding blood and fluids, the goal, like with most uh, surgeries, is to keep them euvolemic and basically maintain the cerebral perfusion. Generally, for these cases, you want at least two IVs at least an 18 to a 16. And then for craniotomies, the thought is to usually just use normal saline as it reduces the, the chance of developing cerebral edema. Though according to Barish, you could also use LR uh, as well. But for my institution, we generally use uh, normal saline for craniotomies. And generally, we want to try to limit the fluids to less than 10 cc's per kilo with replacement of the urine output. Definitely consider albumin if the patient requires additional volume. And definitely, definitely avoid glucose-containing solutions as hyperglycemia is terrible for cerebral metabolism and it pretty much increases the cerebral uh, blood flow due to the increased CMRO2. And speaking of glucose... Uh, the general range you want to keep the patient in is the glucose between 90 to 180. Because anything lower, they'll get a hypoglycemic. And since the brain solely uses glucose for cellular function, you're going to need at least 90 uh, glucose. Um, because otherwise, it has to turn to anaerobic respiration, which creates more lactate and makes the brain acidotic. Okay, for... Monitoring, uh, of course, your standard monitors, you're going to need an arterial line for close blood pressure control. If the patient is doing a sitting craniotomy, it's definitely a good idea to place a central line, not only for fluid re resuscitation, but um, because of the high incidence of venous air embolisms. So if that happens, you're able to suck out any air that maybe traveling in the bloodstream. To that end, it's possible to have a good idea to have a precordial Doppler to detect the venous air embolism. Obviously, uh, since it's a relatively long procedure, you're going to need a Foley catheter to measure urine output. And depending on the neurosurgery team, uh, you'll, also, you'll also have SSCPs and MEPs, the neuromonitoring. Regarding positioning, as we talked about at the beginning, kind of depends on where the tumor is. Okay, so that's pretty much the main intraoperative considerations. Now we're going to move on to postoperative considerations. Complications that you generally see, things like seizures, neurologic deficits, tension, pneumocephalus, uh, hemorrhaging of the brain that requires additional re-exploration, and edema with increased ICP. With things like seizures, most likely you'll treat with anticonvulsants or like uh, benzodiazepines. And the other stuff, generally, 
requires um, going back to the OR. Regarding pain, it's possible, according to your institution, to give meparidine, and the general dosage is 10 to 20 milligrams IV PRN, and you can also give things like Tylenol uh, if you have not given that intraoperatively. Tests that you generally order post-op, uh, generally the neurosurgery team would order it, but if not, then uh, CT head after the procedure would be a wise thing to do. All right. Thank you guys for sticking with this episode. I hope this is very informative for you and is helpful for you in coming up with the anesthesia plan for your craniotomy. And since this is the end of the episode, I would like to remind you to try to fill out the post survey. Again, it's just one question with an uh, optional question to give feedback or some sort of comments on the episode. Definitely looking forward to hearing from you guys. To end this episode, I'm going to give you a joke from readersdigest.com. And it goes, what did the fish say when he swam into a wall? Damn. All right, guys. Um, if you'd like to receive updates on when... Uh, I drop any episodes or blog posts, uh, definitely follow the social media link in the description. Things like the Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram page, and we have the website as well. Um, Yeah, uh, looking forward to having you along this journey. And with that said, um, this is Scott, the anesthesia resident, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.